Hello, and welcome to the Civil War Podcast Bonus Episode 6, Money Matters. A brief interruption of the normal scheduled episode today, as I need a bit more time to finish up the piece on Dred Scott, his case, and the national significance of it all. Instead, we'll turn to that much more interesting topic, banking reform legislation to manage fiduciary responsibility. I know we've all been eagerly awaiting this subject, and naturally there's been a deluge of messages demanding I shelve the moral fury over slavery and postpone the glorious and terrible destruction of early industrial warfare in favor of discussing cold hard cash. All joking aside, however, this is actually a very important topic to discuss in the context of the Civil War, and for several reasons. The first major reason isn't what you'd expect. No, literally. The way money and finance worked in those days just isn't what you'd expect, not based on the modern notions of how simple things like buying and selling function. But second, the technicalities of money and banking really did affect the course of empires in this day. In a sense, banks are a kind of technology, and when developed, they give a great deal of power to its owners. Some nations developed banks effectively, and in doing so they also developed their economies faster and in a more stable manner. And in the modern era especially, nations with shaky banks often found that their economies grew brittle or failed to grow at all. This mattered. Even more than 2,000 years ago, the Roman senator Marcus Tullius Cicero could observe that the sinews of war are infinite money. Nervos bellae pecuniam infinitum. Cicero, Philippix. All this will eventually have a potent impact on the Civil War years as the underdeveloped banking limited capital, and the slow strangulation of the economy becomes a factor crushing the Confederate Treasury Department. By contrast, the Union finances, despite a shaky start, will stabilize after the first year and go on to a roaring success. Having stronger and healthier banks was a consequence of a stronger economy, yes, but they also directly and indirectly contributed to that economy. To begin our exploration of this idea, we should step back and examine the realities of pre-industrial money and finance. For one thing, in nearly all of human history, almost all money was based on some physical asset. This doesn't necessarily mean a physical object that you'd conceive of as cash, however. Different societies have used everything from farm animals to cowrie shells to gigantic stone rings as currency. Now we'll mostly look at this from a European perspective, but keep in mind that all societies have some form of money and credit, but the form these take are diverse and often difficult to fully comprehend for outsiders. Nearly everything we mention in this episode has some precedent somewhere in history, often stretching back centuries or even millennia. The form of currency we're most concerned with today, however, is specie. Specie just means coinage, usually of some kind of precious, semi-precious, or at least marginally valuable mineral. Traditionally, that meant gold, silver, and often copper or other metal alloys that include some of those. Depending on the relative value of metals in a given era, and the prosperity of a given region, specie might be very easy to come by and widely circulated. Only the very wealthy could deal in gold currency, but silver coinage changed hands daily in towns and cities. As you might guess, this could create an agonizing pain point for trade and finance alike. Moving cold, hard cash around took time and lots of security. In the medieval era, merchant houses, especially Italian ones, came up with an easier, if more complicated, system based on letters of credit, a practice still used today. 
instead of moving around piles of precious metals, those were stored safely in various urban trade centers. The merchant house instead provided literal letters, which granted depositors the right to withdraw equal funds. The advantage here lay in the fact that depositing money and removing it might be done from different locations. Of course, problems still existed for bankers in an era when the very fastest communications method available might be a guy riding a horse. For one, let's say you tried to draw upon your letter of credit while some distance from its issuer. The locals might not know how stable and reliable the banker was, and it might take them days or weeks to redeem it. They may not be willing to give you full value for the letter, and therefore your money just doesn't go as far. Hence, gold and silver still held considerable value precisely because they were trade goods widely recognized, almost universal in fact. Now, before any professionals start hyperventilating about trying to explain this, well yes, this is all a wild oversimplification. We're not trying to explain the history of all currency and credit throughout Europe alone, not even bringing in the world. Just as one example, we're deliberately not diving into the bizarre point where Catholic pilgrimages and the Crusades partly created the banking system, nor can we discuss the various experiments with paper money which go back at least to China a thousand years ago. However, those experiments were rather important to the young American Republic in one way. By the time the United States comes along, paper currency was well understood and widely used, but it was not necessarily seen as a replacement for gold and silver specie. This occurred precisely because all those experiments did not, speaking very broadly, turn out well. You see, paper currency, or the banknote, is really just a refinement of the letter of credit idea. Instead of a single document declaring that you have credit up to so much value, you receive a neat pile of bills in convenient sizes. The difficulty here is in making them into a reliable store of wealth and a reliable medium of exchange, and both at the same time. In the United States, squaring that particular circle became tied directly into the story of the Civil War, and this episode should form a foundation for a future discussion of that. In the antebellum era, people great and small often viewed paper currency with deep suspicion, and almost always preferred payment in specie. This created a rather significant problem for banks and the United States government. Both did not want to pay out specie constantly, but of course they needed and wanted to receive it and hold it. Remember too that all 13 colonies saw themselves as sovereign, individual, and distinct at the time of the Revolutionary War. After the adoption of the Constitution, they each retained considerable sovereign authority. Each state managed banking on its own, and in its own preferred way. Significantly, this generally meant that bank operations were limited to one state only, and state regulations tended to be lax or non-existent. Again, this represents a simplification. State banks could be well-capitalized or operate on razor-thin margins, well-regulated or not, regional or local. But they all had difficulties operating across state lines where that was possible at all, and each state had an interest in attracting bank capital to itself. At the same time, Tightly regulated banks might swiftly become less competitive with their neighbors across the state line, and in any case no government wanted to restrict credit its citizens could use to expand business. All this contributed to a constant economic cycle of boom and bust, small and large, that gave the early American economy the jumps. In good times, bankers often extended easy credit to absurdly dangerous degrees and paid themselves rather too generously in return.
But in bad time, that misuse of credit led to sudden and debilitating shockwaves as banks quickly folded. With little regulation and little recourse, careful savers who put money in banks might see their savings evaporate overnight. Naturally, this created the desire to correct the problem. Unfortunately, politics being what they were, it appeared no two men could entirely agree on the remedy for these ongoing challenges. Perhaps the often booming economy in some ways made it seem a little less important, too. Recessions and depressions were always followed by new expansion and growth, and debtors could always push off to a farther frontier if things got too bad. And as a result, many people preferred to keep their wealth in gold and silver, or only in the most stable institutions. Now, Alexander Hamilton himself pushed through the creation of the first bank of the United States all the way back in 1791, with a time-limited charter of 20 years. However, this bank primarily sorted out the national finances following the Revolution. It worked rather well, in fact, but Jefferson's Democrat-Republican Party opposed the bank from the very depths of their collective soul, and this would go on to become a hallmark of future Democratic Party policy. In 1811, on the very eve of the War of 1812, Congress refused to renew the bank charter. It liquidated and fell into private hands. Technically, it still exists today, as part of one acquisition after another over two centuries. Regardless, the triumphant Democrats could pause the bank system for only a few more years, and the second bank of the United States received its charter in 1816, again for a period of 20 years. The significance of the second bank lay in its ability to regulate the credit of other banking institutions. State banks, whether public or private, kept running into issues of easy credit, as discussed. Or in more specific terms, they lent out far too much money compared to deposits. Sooner or later, this tends to cause a bank run. Bank runs, which almost never occur anymore for regulated banks, happen when people know or fear the bank can't redeem all its deposits. Individuals, therefore, go and try to redeem their deposits immediately, lest they lose everything. Of course, this very definitely causes the bank to lose all its capital, but doing so is not foolish. Bank runs are not merely caused by the bank loaning out more money than it has, because that's normal. Rather, they almost always occur when an economic downturn or some catastrophe make the bank fundamentally insolvent, or at least at risk of it. The customers are only responding logically from there. Bank runs naturally became an unfortunately commonplace problem in early America, and the second bank hoped to fix it by acting as an intermediary for treasury bills and the like. Without getting into all the technical details, this broadly worked, but it wound up giving a very questionable amount of power to the bank itself, and with no good method for the government to demand accountability. During the Jacksonian era, all this came to head when Andrew Jackson, the man himself, fell into a conflict with Nicholas Biddle, president of the bank for over a decade. Jacksonian Democrats had a great many complaints about the actions of the bank, most specifically because they questioned its constitutionality. But at the same time, a great many people still relied exclusively on hard money, that is, gold and silver specie, and they disdained soft money, or paper bank currency, nearly as an article of faith. There were good reasons for this. Decade after decade saw paper currency swing wildly in value, or simply become worthless overnight as a bank closed. Gold and silver appeared invincible. And gold and silver remained the powerful instruments of international trade, far into the railroad era. The government itself demanded hard currency when tariffs came due, not a questionable bank draft drawn on a financial institution it hadn't vetted and couldn't easily verify. That said, 
Andrew Jackson himself wasn't as anti-bank as might be imagined, unlike Senator Thomas Hart Benton, a vocal hard-money apostle. Jackson could bargain adroitly when he chose, and he was happy to compromise on the bank issue. But for Nicholas Biddle, there was a problem. With the bank charter swiftly coming due, he felt uncertainty as to whether Jackson would follow through. And, indeed, it wasn't a sure thing. So Biddle made the fateful decision to defy Jackson and attempt to get Henry Clay to push through a rechartering law in Congress a couple years early. Now, if there's one thing we've thoroughly explored regarding Andrew Jackson's character, it's that he did not take defiance lightly. He could tolerate men who openly opposed him. He did not for one moment tolerate treachery and intrigue. Biddle had just committed both. Congress passed its Banking Act, but Jackson then vetoed it with a strong message that in effect outlined a new national policy regarding banking. The veto message also contained a strong ideological rejection of insular and self-dealing Northeastern elites, a group including, though not limited to, one of the bank's most prominent champions, Daniel Webster. Jackson's work to end the Second Bank of the United States did not end banking, far from it. Instead, he ordered the government funds deposited in a number of state banks, which collectively would be used to provide many of the same functions as a central bank. Among the key figures for this process was Attorney General Roger Taney, who would shortly become Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and one of the major figures in our next episode on Dred Scott. In the meantime, Nicholas Biddle wasn't about to just up and quit. Having been told publicly that his bank was too dangerous and operated without proper oversight, he decided to fight back. Unfortunately, Biddle's chosen method of combat went out of its way to prove Jackson entirely right. In order to demonstrate how important the bank was, Nicholas Biddle restricted operations and more or less caused a small depression. He technically proved his point, but only in the way that destroyed his position. Some of Biddle's actions could be justified as trying to rationalize the operations and change the bank over in anticipation of becoming a solvent and independent Pennsylvania firm. But much else was clearly done solely as retaliation. The short-term result was a deep economic downturn and wave of bankruptcy starting in 1833. The long-term result was that collective anti-Jackson politicians formed the Whig Party. That, however, did Biddle and the bank no good. Now, Jackson wasn't wrong when he identified the problems of the central bank. It didn't respond to the real national needs for credit and finance. It really was self-dealing, and the lack of oversight proved nearly disastrous. But the newly founded Whig Party, and more specifically, the men who would go on to become Republicans, correctly realized that the nation needed a proper central bank in some fashion to serve its national needs. Fate dictated, however, that they never had the right situation to follow through up until Abraham Lincoln becomes president. Instead, each individual president for 25 years will end up using a makeshift and somewhat temporary treasury system or systems, partly of their own design, and with whatever approvals they could ram through Congress. Much of the reason for this lay in that Democrats themselves couldn't agree on what to do, whether to support a more decentralized soft money system or a purely hard money one. And really, the latter was impossible anyway. There simply wasn't enough gold and silver to do it. Thus, in the two decades leading up to the Civil War, the nation suffered from a fundamentally broken banking system. The Panic of 1837 alone destroyed many long-standing institutions and erased the savings of thousands upon thousands of ordinary Americans. 
And that was just one panic, one crisis. State chartered banks were as often as not frauds from the start. Sometimes their paper held value and might circulate far from bank operations. But others rose and fell with the seasons. Even when run honestly, the economic boom and bust cycle might destroy a bank before it could respond to problems even if it fundamentally held value because no central national lender could provide credit under those circumstances. Only the rapid growth of the nation, both geographic and industrial, allowed this situation to continue. Now why is all this important? Hopefully you found it interesting, but what's the relevance to the Civil War aside from providing background? First, it had a definite impact on the culture of the American South. Southern banks were no more reliable than those elsewhere, and among other irritations, finance wound up largely centralized in New York City or Philadelphia. Not exclusively, of course, but if a planner needed credit, he may have to go and get the approval of a New Yorker to get it. International trade also rounded nearly every transaction through New York in some way, including the sale and distribution of a vast proportion of Southern cotton. Whether it was fair or not, and it wasn't, many Southern planters had feelings of economic dependency and exploitation. But the problems also created an opportunity for the Republicans and became one of their major campaign platforms. They inherited the Whig desire to form a strong, modern central bank, like England had, and reap the benefits thereof. After two decades and more, their ideas had been refined, and the pressure of the Panic of 1857, as well as the start of the war, made reform a matter of some urgency. The result will be well known to everyone, because this sparked the printing of a new paper form of the good old U.S. dollar. The public, upon getting a good look at those new paper bills, immediately gave them the familiar nickname Greenback, and so they have stayed ever since. Next episode, I promise, we will get to Dred Scott, possibly the single most significant and horrifying legal decision ever delivered in our nation's history. Join us to see Roger Taney, former Attorney General and long-standing, widely respected Chief Justice, destroy his reputation forever, and also inadvertently give the Republicans the single biggest campaign issue of all time. This has been the American Civil War Podcast, and I hope you'll join us next week.